Well, hey again. Morning. I, uh, on one hand, it's sad that we have to ask God to give us compassion for those who are hurting, but on the other hand, it's a good thing to ask God to give us compassion for those who are hurting. Just because we don't have it doesn't mean we don't need it. And I appreciate Larry's prayer that God would take our, transform our burdens into desires. It would be more than just feeling sorry for them, but that, that would turn into a desire. We would become intentional. I love what he prayed. Go ahead and get the coat out of the closet and put it right there on the seat with you. And like, to be intentional about meeting other people's needs. And uh, I can say this you know, about Larry. He wouldn't want me to toot his own horn, but he's a man who walks that out um, very, uh, very realistically in his life, uh, making preparations to help meet other people's needs. And um, I've, I've benefited from that, and I've also benefited from his example, learning how to do that myself for other people. So um, you ever get, you know, a birthday card with a $10 bill on it, you don't know what to do? Stash it to give to somebody who needs it one day. That's a great great thing to pray. I appreciate Larry's leadership. And I, uh, I had a chance to travel this past week. So um, when I do that and I'm around other church leaders, it gives me an opportunity to, to talk about you. Um, I'm always asked, tell me about your church. Tell me about the demographics of the church. And, uh, and so it always gives me a chance to brag about you and to tell people how much I love you and uh, appreciate you and all the great things I love about this church. And, and so this morning I thought, well, why don't I just tell you how much I love you and appreciate you and, and how amazing I think you are. Um, one of the things I get asked is, well, tell me about the demographics of your church. You young or old, give me a socioeconomic class. And, and so I, I tend to give names of people that they've never met. I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you know Rick Hepner. He's, uh, he's, he's retired PD and, he, you know, he donates more time than most staff members put together at our church. I think about, you know... Um, those who do hospitality, Lucy and Mark, and Cheryl and Sue. Um, I think about our awesome kids ministry. I tell them about, you know, Billy and Joe Warren, who have just been serving for you know, decades here at the church. I tell them about, you know, new people here and you know, Lewis Mattingly in the men's ministry. And I just, I give them names of people they've never met. And they're like, I don't know who these people are. Because, like, for me, that's who you are. Like, I don't have a demographic equivalent to say this is who we are as a church. And one of the names that I'll often give is, um, is John Grubb. He was in the last service, and, and I used his name without his permission then too. And, and I think like John and Stacy Grubb, I think if I was going to try to say, well, this is kind of who we are, um, they're, uh, they're, they're uh, still a young couple, even though their natural kids are all out of the, out of the home. They're still a fairly young couple, both working, kind of struggling through life like the rest of us. Um, and, uh, and, and have recently uh, adopted a little girl, really rescued her from a really terrible situation, started over raising kids again. Um, they're not the only family. Rick and Catherine Hepner have, have done this as well. And, and, and so, like, they're kind of typical. Uh, but the reality is, right, we're not just a demographic. Like, we're a collection of people with faces and names and other than the name Jason, right? I mean, that gets overdone here a lot, but like we all have our own names and identities. And, and so like, I just, I love talking to other people about you and I love telling them, hey, I love my church. But today I thought I would just say, like, I love you. I love our vast differences. I love that we come from so many different career and socioeconomic backgrounds and education experiences. And 
in degree levels. And, and, and I love that we come from even a lot of just different denominational backgrounds, that we come together and we have one song to sing. And you don't necessarily look around and make sure everybody's dressed to your social equivalent before you agree to sit down on a row, but that we, we sit down with our brothers and sisters. And so in this place, um, we literally are one family. And, uh, and so I love that about Solid Rock. I love you. So I want to tell you that this morning, uh, which will lead us into our sermon today on the people of the kingdom. And that same principle is true about what we're going to be talking about today. God's kingdom, does it include land? Sure, the earth, right? And the rest of the universe. I mean, does it include things? I mean, the Psalms says what? That the earth is mine, everything in it. Yeah, absolutely. But most importantly, the people, the people who live in it. Just like our church is a people, not a building or a stage, or we're, we're a people, and God's kingdom is a people. So God creates something out of nothing. He's getting to something. He's not just creating dirt and water going, well, now I feel inspired. I got to put something to swim in. I'll do fish, and then what am I going to do with the dirt? Okay, I'll do rabbits. And then he's not just, you know, flying off the, shooting from the hip, right, so to speak. He's got an intention here. He's building up to something. He's creating a universe and a planet and an ecosystem that will support not just life, but the climax of creation, people. Like everything that God creates is building up to this end of day six, now, we, last week, we went through chapter one of Genesis, which I kind of think of as the time-lapse video of creation. If you've ever watched like a day time-lapse, the sun comes up and then everything happens and it's just really fast fragments of shots and then the sun goes down and you kind of, like that's what the Genesis one does for us, just time-lapse. Here's day one. There was morning and there was evening. Day two, there was morning, there was evening. Day three, day four, day five, day six. And that's chapter one of Genesis. But now we're moving to chapter 2, which is where we get the real-time video of the end of day 6, which is the creation of God's people to reflect his glory to all of creation. So this is where we're going to be this morning in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Now, just a couple of notes before we start reading the text. One, so far... God is created by speaking things into existence. And then we'll get another description that he forms things out of the ground. The beginning of chapter 2 talks about how um, God has brought forth the plants out of the, out of the dirt. And then he took dirt and scooped it up. And then he breathed life into it. And so this is kind of, and we're going to read it, that he, he created the animals out of the ground again. And he's like, God's just taking elements and uh, breathing life into them and placing them here into the ecosystem and so this is where 15, I love this imagery, is where it starts. God has kind of scooped some dirt up. He's fashioned, which is different from just speaking it. He's formed man, breathed life into his nostrils. And then verse 15, he places him on the earth. Like This is a very intentional God. He's not just throwing chaos out there, letting life just happen however it wants to happen. He's very intentional, and he places man, in verse 15, in the garden. Let's pick this up. And the Lord God took the man. Now, who's this man? 
Adam. This is a real-time video, so to speak, of what's happening. He's only created one people, one person, one human being, and his name is Adam. Eve's not here yet. So he takes the man, Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden, this beautiful collection of words follows, to work it and to keep it. Now, that tells me, without even really understanding what he meant by saying those words, that tells me that not only was man placed in a very specific place on earth, but man was placed there with a very specific function on earth, right? And this is consistent with what we saw in the time-lapse version last week. Man was created with a purpose primarily to bear the image of God, reflect the image of God to creation, to say to the rock, this is your king, right? And to express back to God glory and honor and worship. So this reflector, but in doing so, God said, here's what I want your function to be. Go multiply, right? Go get together with males, get together with females, have kids, and, and have dominion sub- go and subdue the earth. So that's the time-lapse version. Now he's going to give us a very specific, clear view of what he meant by go have dominion over the earth. I mean, that's pretty broad. What do you mean? Go set the whole thing on fire and go, oh, I have dominion. What does he mean? Go harvest all the gold and make for yourself a palace? What does he mean? And so very specifically, as he places Adam, just picture this, God with Adam in his hand. Adam's like breathing. Maybe he's coming to and he's going through his senses for the first, like, whoa, this is just weird. And all of a sudden, like he realized, oh, I'm moving, you know. There goes a mountain. Whoa, what was that? And and God's like, here, Adam, I'm going to place you right here on earth to do something. Lord God takes Adam, takes him, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, the first word, work it, uh, is not too difficult to understand. It implies really two things. One, work, like labor, and two, this idea of serving, servanthood, okay, which are two different things. Like, when we talk about going to work, we talk about going to the place that we clock in, right, give somebody our time that they exchange, hopefully, uh, for money at the end so that we can take that money and and live and do things and buy things that we don't need in the whole thing, right? Or show to a creditor so that they'll loan us more money than we can pay back. So that's that's how it works. We call that work. We go to work to buy things or to pay off things that we already bought we couldn't afford. Now, serving is a whole different thing for us, right? Serving implies servanthood. It implies um, going and humbling yourself. And so hopefully... Uh, what you do here at Solid Rock, if you're a volunteer, is serving. You don't view it as work. I hope you don't for two reasons. One, I hope you like it more than what you do at work. And two, I hope you're not expecting to get paid at the end. But, like, there's a difference, right? And so, like, this, this idea that God created the earth in six days and rested, he'll come back in the law uh, in, in Exodus in the law and say, now I want you to do this, man. I want you to live this way. Work six and rest. Okay, so we have to then make an interpretation of what that means for us in our culture today, right? So we, we operate in a culture where I would say you can get by on what you can make in 40 hours. Now, there are exceptions, okay, especially like single moms or, 
If you've got, you know, you're working for minimum wage, I understand there are exceptions, but by and large, you can get by working five days a week, eight hours a day. You can get, you can live in a smaller house. Don't come say, I can't get by. Okay, well, is there a smaller place you could live? Is there a cheaper car you could drive? Do we always have to eat out? You know, so there are exceptions, but for the most part, we can get by, right? Five days a week. Um, There's also then time still left to serve, a full day worth that we could serve every week and still get our day of rest. I think that I like to think this way and maybe encourage you to start thinking this way that like if this is your day of serving, um, that you really protect Saturday or whatever your other day, if you get today, your other day off to rest, like truly rest. And if you find yourself filling up your day of rest with chores and catching up on laundry and cleaning, this is us. Um, which is a conversation I want to have later, not about you doing it, but like, here's the part, I want, like, like, here's the thing. Can we not get a lot of that stuff knocked out in the 20, like 20 minutes here, 30 minutes there, so that on that day of rest, we can maybe have a day of rest? I mean, I think we would do better at the five days of working and definitely would enjoy that full day of serving. Um, because here's my fear. Um, first of all, nobody here rests. And so you show up on Sunday, if you volunteer, it feels like work. And then you don't get paid, and it's like double whammy disappointment, right? But I think, I think life would be full of joy. And here's the thing about, too, when God says this and makes it law, he's speaking to a people who for hundreds of years have been working 24-7 as slaves. So he's not encouraging them to work harder. He's giving them permission to take a day off. We're in a culture that has to talk us into working, Okay, so we have to see it differently. But I think God would say to especially those busybodies, hey, take a day off. You can, you can make your living in the time I've given you to work, and you still have a little time here. You could go serve, volunteer, go do what Jeff was talking about, um, go serve in a food kitchen, or maybe just go randomly pick up trash and walk down the street and see who God brings into your path. However you want to spend it, but go serve. How does that sound? God designed man and gave him a function to work. This is before the fall. The curse we get is in our work, right? He doesn't change the function. He just says, now this thing I created to be a blessing, it's going to be a curse. You still have to work. Now you're going to have some thorns and you're surely going to hate your boss. And yeah, and then you're going to get laid off and it's just going to, you know. Now, Let's think about this for just a minute, okay? Again, I haven't worked all this out with my wife, so this is going to be fun doing it in front of her. Um, So our primary function, men, okay, as God's unfolding gender roles here, is to work. And it's backed up in the curse because what does he curse? Work. So then we look at the lady and go, whoa, whoa, what's her function in, in, in this situation? What does God curse? Childbearing. Here's your function. Give birth to children, help rear and raise them and nurture them. And, and, and so what does he curse? Now, here's the irony. Like, this is convicting me, and I haven't landed yet, so you let it land on you however it needs to land on you. But, like, think about that, okay? So man was given this function to work, and then now under the curse of sin, um, we, we, it's harder. It's painful. We don't like it. Um, and so woman was given this other curse over here. Isn't it strange, men? especially those of us who tend to think we're so strong and so hard at work and, and our wives are just so weak. Isn't it strange that they can help burden our part of the curse, but there isn't a thing we can do to help burden theirs? 
there, let that land on you. Like, that's convicting to me. Like, I'm in a household where we both work, and, and my wife loves to work. It's not like I'm forcing her to work, but there's a burden there that she's carrying. She doesn't always love her job. She comes home stressed. She's carrying some of the burden of my curse. Anything I can do to help with bearing children. Now, I, I think we, we can learn some things about our culture here. I think our culture in large has, come, first of all, just completely devalued the function of the woman in our culture and society. Why is it not more honorable when, when a woman carries a baby for nine months and then gives birth? Like, you've, you've earned a lifetime of rest, right? And then you do it multiple times? And like, why is that not more honored and more revered and more applauded? This is, I hope that women are feeling more encouraged and men are starting to go, I'm just, I'm a wimp. I am. Like, and, and I know we get in tough times and both have to work, but by and large, we set trajectories for our life. And we attain our own debt. Therefore, we, we, we earn this responsibility that we have to go out there. We, we choose that ourselves, most of us. And I'm just wrestling with that. Should I be maybe leading my family in a direction uh, that, that, that doesn't force my wife to carry part of the burden of that? Like, I'm not saying she has to stay home and do nothing. How about she spends that time serving? I'm just saying, ladies, you need to be, get the ankle bracelet and, you know, don't leave the house. If I, you know, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, that the, the burden of that work, it was given in blessing to man and in the curse of the fall, it was still his. And women, we're going to be talking about gender roles even more specifically in a little bit, but one of the functions that you've been given, we can't do, is bear and rear children. That's, just, that's a gift that should be honored. And so, like, as a, as a, as a guy who was raised by a single mom, uh, ladies, you, you're my hero. Like, you, in, the, in this whole conversation, like, ladies, you're, you are collectively my single moms. Golly. Like, you, you work and you, you take care of all of it. I don't know all the reasons why maybe you're a single mom. Maybe some you had to do with and some you didn't. I, I, that's not even it. I'm talking about you're bearing like this weight that you were not designed to bear and give it to a woman. You know what she'll do? She'll, she'll, she'll go down fighting, carrying that load for her children. And there's some awesome single dads too. I don't want to demean dads. Um, but most often in our culture, I think women get to carry their burden of the fall and then a little bit of ours too sometimes. I'll just say it that way. And so here God is unfolding gender with specific function. And in just a minute, he's gonna speak to value, which is this really important part of the conversation. All right, the second part of what he says is not only man, am I placing you right here in the garden to work, but I'm placing you here to, what's the word? Keep it. Isn't that an interesting word? What does he mean? Well, it can imply a lot of things, right? Like, I have two boys, and they like to keep things. And they really like to keep whatever the other person is trying to keep most of the time. Is that what he means? Grab a hold of it. Don't let anybody else mess with it. The, the word literally means, like, if you get into the language study, 
Um, this is Hebrew. We don't have really good Hebrew dictionaries, uh, so we piece things together. But you know who is really good at interpreting Hebrew are Hebrews, Jewish people. And before the turn of um, A.D., they translated this text into Greek, which is a language we are more familiar with. And this word keep it gets translated to us. And it literally means to guard, to protect, to keep your eye on it. Men, God created the man, the male, placed him in the garden to work and to keep it, to keep his eye on it, to protect it and to guard it, which implied what? Somebody was eventually going to try to take it. Now, we'll get into that in just a minute and more next week. But let me ask this question. Who was this function given to, man or woman? Man. Don't, don't make any mistake here, guys. Eve isn't here yet. And the very next thing that the word is going to say is God gives man a command. So here's what God does. Here you go, Adam. You go work and you keep it. You keep your eye on it. You protect it. You guard it, and here's your command. Like, I don't think there's any mistake here in the flow of thought. Look at what God says to Adam. And the Lord God, right after keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Let's just unpack that for just a moment. I know that can get confusing. So far in the creation experience, Everything has been good. So man has no knowledge of not good. God does have knowledge of it. And so God says to man, here's your job, here's your, here's your role, your function. You go keep it, you guard it, here's your law. You obey it. Don't eat from this tree. As soon as you do, and, and, the, and the serpent comes in and makes a shift on that, right? You're going to be like God. That's, that's actually true. God is saying, man, I don't want you to know not good. I only want you to know good. Don't eat from this tree. He gives that law to man. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Because see, God can know good and what is not good and not die. Man cannot. As soon as you know what not good is, you also begin to know and experience what death is. Now, what's going to follow from this is the creation now of woman. So you see how God's unfolding this progressively. Man, here's your function. Here's your task. Here's your duty. Here's your law. You keep it. Who's supposed to be leading creation right now? Adam is the leader of all creation right now at this point. He's the chief steward and manager of everything. You might even say he's the chief worshiper. He is the chief person in creation. Eve isn't here yet. Let's roll on. So, verse six, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, this is the first not good of scripture, because God knows what is not good. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man shall be alone. Now, remember, God is the one who can see good and not good. It's why God's saying it. At this point, we don't have any idea that Adam even knows things aren't good. I mean, he's just, right? 
just trying to figure out where he's going to pitch his tent. And he's just overwhelmed with, whoa, all the color and the smells and the flavors and the potential. And I think I could jump off that rock into that water. And like, right? He's thinking like a man, having dominion over the earth. And, and God's looking, he's saying, ah, it's not good yet. And, and I don't think Adam has any idea because I think what God's going to do in just a minute is reveal to Adam that things aren't good and then bring in Eve. Okay? But here's what God says he's going to do first. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I think we make some terrible mistakes interpreting this passage. I really do. I think one of the ways this gets interpreted is that man was lonely. Man was aware of his, his being there by himself. He, his excitement with the dog began to wear out. You know, Taught you to sit and roll over. Now what? You know, I'm getting bored with you. Fine, let me go to the elephant, you know, whatever. And no, there's no, there's no, nothing in the text says that man feels lonely. That's a result of the fall. The word literally translates singular. So God's unfolding the gender and the function and the creation. And he's saying, I'm not done yet. Adam doesn't know I'm not done yet, but I know I'm not done yet. It's not good that he's by himself. So here's what would be good. Here's what will make this very good. I will make a helper fit for him. Again, I think a place where we tend to maybe mistranslate this or misinterpret it is to just to get fixated on this word helper, which in, come on guys, in our culture, that's a pretty demeaning role by and large, right? Like I'm the pro here. I'm the journeyman. I'm the master electric. I'm the expert at this. this oh, this is my helper. They're not suitable for this task, but they can go get me a hammer, okay, right? If we just stop with helper, I think that's a misinterpretation of what's being spoken here. That's not the woman's function here, to help you succeed at everything you do, men, and go grab you a hammer. Now, sometimes women are just better at swinging hammers. That's one of the problems with that, but that's not what's being spoken here, okay? So the key to understanding this is the fit part, Okay, so there's a task being given. You're going to need some help to carry it out. And the way it's going to work is if I create something or someone that fits with you. Okay, that's what's different. Now, all the rest of creation, um, God has spoken or he has scooped up dirt, right, and breathed life into it, formed it, breathed life. And that's how he's created everything up until this point. Eve is created differently. And I think for some very beautiful and specific reasons that I hope we'll see together. So here's what happens next. I love this. I call this the parade of animals. Again, I don't think Adam knows that he's alone. I don't think that he knows that this is not good. I think he's probably still overwhelmed with the beauty of creation. God sees that it's not good. And what he does next with these animals, I think, is revealing to Adam that this thing isn't done yet. It's not complete and it's therefore not good. So he brings these animals by him. Uh, to find, to see if Adam can find a suitable helper. And so, you know, the dog comes by, and he's like, well, I like that one. I mean, yeah, there goes the horse and the rabbit, and he's naming them. There goes the, I was made this joke in the first service, and see if it goes over here. It's really not that funny. Um, but, like, some animal names just intrigue me. Like, the, the, the ant comes by, and he's like, oh, look at that. You're as small as an ant. That's what we call it, ant. Like, you don't even get a big word. You're just like one syllable, like ant. You're so little. 
And then, and then the next one comes by, and it's like, oh, my gosh, you're not an ant. You're an elephant. Wow. <laughs> it went over twice. It was great. So this is what Adam is doing. He's naming things. And at the same time, God is revealing to him, out of everything I've created from the ant to the elephant, none of these things will fit. They, none of these things will fit you. And so Adam is becoming more, maybe possibly more and more aware of the incompleteness that creation's not done. So this is what God does, what I call the parade of animals. Let's read it together. This is a more biblical version. Uh, Verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. That's what I call the parade of animals. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name, which is still true today, right? I mean, dogs don't get to name themselves. Or if we discover a new insect, the insect doesn't go, oh, by the way, here's my name. Here it is in Latin, and then here it is in English. So that's not how it works. We name things. We still do that as men. We call things things. We call things things. You want a minute to write that down? We call things things. Verse 20, and the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and the, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. See, I don't think God was looking like, oh, this is not working out. I gotta find somebody fit for him. Surely I've created something in here that'll work. And I think he's revealing this to Adam. He's at least revealing it to us that, that an animal won't do, that nothing in creation will do to fit the function that Eve is gonna fit. You need to hear that again, ladies. There is not a thing in creation, all of creation, that can take your role among creation. It just just isn't going to happen. You can can teach an animal to work, right? But an, an animal can't become a surrogate like. Rear children. What a, and that's not just it. Like, don't get fixated on that's all we're for. I'm saying if that, if that is all, that's enough. What a glorious, valuable, precious gift. What work. I call it labor because it is. I think. I haven't done it. So here's what God does, and I love this. It's a totally different creation process, and I, and I think we can glean some valuable things from it. Verse 21, so, because no helper was fit for him, 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. So the same thing, but now something's different about this one. Then the man said, whoa, this one's different. She's, she's different. She kind of looks like me, but she's different enough that she's not me, right? She's, this is at last, this bone of my bones. Now, that at last makes me think that Adam's relieved here. Whew, I thought I was going to have to settle for the koala bear. <laughs> it's like this breath of relief at last. This one... This one's like me, like not completely like me, which that's a whole other story, right? But enough like me that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw in close to this one. You laugh, but 
It's now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here's what I would offer up to you this morning in my interpretation of, of that type of creation is that God didn't set out to create another species. You know, what do you mean by that? Like, he, he didn't set out to go create something different to work with man. He, he drew out of man something that not, wasn't just like him, but was him, part of him. And, and, and the way that I visualize it, it's almost like two magnets trying to come back together, as we're going to see in just a minute. There's this compelling force that pull men and women together, which explains a lot about high school, doesn't it? Yeah. It's just like two, and you're just like trying to keep them apart, parents, right? And, and so like, this is how God creates a woman. He pulls her out of man. And look what happens. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and do what? Hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Back the way it started. I don't think there's any mistake in the text the way that God describes that to us. There's something not just unique about mankind. There is something unique about a male-female bond and relationship that is completely set apart from anything else in creation. I mean, do you have to teach your junior high kids to start having crushes? I mean, do you? I mean, I know some of them do it for peer pressure, but eventually it like, the engines get kick-started, right? And it's like, they're, doing, they're on autopilot there. You don't have to, we, we have to teach them how to manage that. That's coming. We don't have to talk, for the most part, we have to talk them into liking each other. The text tells us that's how I created them. They're supposed to fit together. So when we think in terms of helper, we're not thinking in terms of the, the pro and the, right, the lesser who's just bringing a hammer. We're talking about something that helps because it complements, it fits together. Now, God's unfolding here what I believe gender roles of leadership and what I would call fellowship, and I made that word up. Um, but the idea that man has the lead here, okay? Now, it in no way means that then men, therefore, only get to bring decisions to the table, vision to the table, discernment to the table, wisdom to the table. Like, the, the, the woman is supposed to be a, a fit helper. I lead better when, when Hallie is connected to me in my leadership, and she's encouraging me as a leader, sometimes pushing back in a healthy way, just saying, hey, it's discernment here, let's just think through this. It's not, oh, I'm not going to be the leader, I'm going to follow you, but she's fitting in with me. You see how it's a little bit different? Now, here's the mistake our culture has made, I believe. You can buy into this or not, this is where I think we are. Somehow, somewhere along the lines, ladies, you bought into a lie that in order to be equal in value, you had to be equal in function. It was a lie. Your equal value has absolutely nothing to do with how hard you can work. So many women are, they're already carrying their part of the curse. Whether you have kids or not, 
I mean, there is a, there's a cycle. To, there's a thing to contend with there that we don't have to contend with. You're bearing that part of the burden, ladies. And, and some of you are going, well, he's not doing a very good job, and I'll help carry some of his. And the men are going, That's, that feels better. Get some relief here. Whew, cut that one in half. It's happening. It's a reality. And, and I'll be the first to jump on board with um, the reality that historically in mankind, there has been a general oppression and a devaluing of women in almost, almost all cultures. In some cultures where women have been deified and overvalued, that's the pendulum swing. But very seldom, if ever in human history, has there ever been a culture, really a moment past this one, where men and women truly were valued as the same. I get that. However, the, the way to become equally valued is not to prove that you can be equal in function. It's a lie. And here's the thing. Like, you women are amazing. You can juggle your stuff and part of ours better than most men can even juggle ours, our own. It's not about function. You have an equal value and you need to see it. And on some levels, I feel like I need to re- like ask for forgiveness to almost every lady I come in contact with on behalf of men. I'm sorry we sold you. You see how it worked out for us, ladies? We sold you a lie. You don't have the, you can't vote. Well, you, well, you can't sell a ship. You don't get to deserve a vote because you can't, you, you can't vote because you can't fight in the army. You can't, and so we, you see what we did? You can't function like me, so you don't have value in our culture and society. And so women went, you want to bet? I'll do all that stuff. And, and you did that to try to gain this equal dignity and value. And it was a lie that I think men sold, and it worked out kind of well for us. Like if I were to say, show of hands, how many, of, how many men uh, share the financial responsibility of your home with your wives? Almost every man in the room, right? And, and don't push back and go, well, it's because we got all these bills. We, for the most part, we, for the most part, create our own debt. And, uh, and I'm there right now. This is landing on me heavy, okay? I don't know how it's going to work out, but I want to wrestle with it, okay? So I'm not telling you what to do. So, okay, the conversation on the way home, honey, did you hear what Jason said? I'm quitting my job tomorrow, and you're just going to have to pay the bills. Get a second job, okay? Maybe that's, the, I don't know, maybe that is what you need, but that's not what I'm saying. Men, you say, no, it's not. He said he was wrestling with this, <laughs> But wrestle, yeah, but wrestle with it. Not the way you wrestle with the dishes at night by sitting on the couch and letting her do them, okay? Or not the way you wrestle with a lot of other stuff, ignoring it until she gets it done. Can we be honest here? Okay. She's taking notes. Ouch. That's my wife taking notes. Okay. So, Here's the conclusion of this text, and then we're going to go to Ephesians 5 and end. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The idea of this is all about SEX, it's not all about it, but it does imply that. It's a very unique and intricate, intimate part of it, but it implies more to become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not shamed. That's really one of the last things I want to look at together with you. But let's go to Ephesians 5 for just a second. I want you to see some things here. The first thing that you're going to see, hopefully very clearly, is that this, that this unique 
God created different function of man and woman, husband and wife, is not just isolated to some prehistoric Hebrew text from creation. We're now into the, into, uh, the first century A.D., Paul is writing, and he's saying, remember how God created man with these unique functions and roles, these gender roles? He's going to bring that up in Ephesians 5. So here, it begins with the women. I don't know why. Maybe he was a chauvinist. I don't know. Anyway, he does. Um, but here's the point. L- ladies, you have a unique role. Here it is. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It's your primary function in marriage. Fellowship. Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... Get the copyright on that word. Fellowship. The ability to follow lead. There's, there, just like there's an art to leadership, there's an art and a skill to fellowship. To, you know it. Some of you work in jobs where the people who you're working for or following either aren't as competent or they aren't as competent to you in every situation. For most part, there's a reason why they have that job, but occasionally you're able to go, ah, it'd be better to do it this way. There's an art to following well. It doesn't mean that you just follow blindly. There's, a, there's an art to saying, hey, I respect you and honor you, but hey, there's something I see that you need to factor in with your decision making. Okay, there's an art to following in marriage too where it's, it's, a, it's a gentle give and take that doesn't lead to defensiveness and, and lack of respect and tearing down and, and not loving. Um, but the, the woman was given the fellowship role and then men, verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He, here's, he doesn't say either of those things really to the opposite. There are tons of things that we're supposed to do mutually, but there are some things that we're supposed to do exclusively or primarily exclusively, I would say. Okay? Does that make sense? Think of it in these terms. Your eight-year-old son comes up to you and says, Mom, Dad, what does it mean to be a boy? You wouldn't say, uh, well, you might say, um, well, uh, son, that means that one day you're going to grow up and be married um, well, the girls get married too. I know, I'm not done. Um, but you're going to, um, what it means is you're going to, um, uh, you're going to want to be, uh, and you start thinking about all the things that, that you think define a godly man, like uh, humility and you know, compassion, and you want to stay away from just being prideful and arrogant, and, and you want to be gentle. You know, and you begin using words that also describe a woman. You know, what does it mean to be a boy and not a girl? That's different. Or reverse it with the girl Mommy, daddy, what does it mean to be a girl? And you start answering with things that are both boy and girl specific. Does it make sense? Uh, and so what does it mean to be man and not woman or man and, and not, man and not woman or woman and not man? Paul would say, women, you've been given the role primarily to follow. Men, you've been given primarily the role to lead. Lead this way. Follow this way. Now, here's why I brought this text up. One, it shows us that gender roles don't go away. They're still here today. Two, it gives us a beautiful insight into marriage and, I believe, an entirely different worldview. Track with me. This passage typically gets interpreted as marriage advice. It gets used in weddings. I use it in weddings. It gets used in marriage counseling. I use it in marriage counseling. For a number of years, I would have said what, what's happening here is Paul is saying the way that Jesus loves the church as a metaphor for how marriage is supposed to be really lived out. And so in that equation, Jesus loving the church is the mirror reflecting the reality of marriage. But if you look in verse 31, actually let's start in 32. 
Paul says, this mystery is profound. If he's just giving marriage advice, that's, that means something. Whoa, finally, somebody said it in the Bible. Women are weird, mysterious, right? Like, other than smelling good, they're just not fun to live with all the time. It's mysterious. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about marriage. I know I was, I was talking about marriage, but I was talking about marriage to talk about something else that's more important. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here's what he's saying. I wasn't giving you marriage advice. I wasn't saying, look at Jesus in the church, and that's good marriage advice. Paul is saying this. Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus in the church. And I'm saying that marriage is the metaphor. Marriage is the, the mirror reflecting God's glory. And I'm saying, husbands, if you'll serve in your function this way, you'll best reflect the glory of God to creation. And wives, if you'll serve in this function this way, I'm not saying it's going to give you this happy marriage and he's going to all of a sudden start cherishing you and loving you. What I'm saying is this, if you'll pursue this function, you will best glorify God with your existence. That's a flipped equation. That means that my marriage is less about my happiness and more about how well we reflect the glory of God. Did you notice how like every verse he turns it back to the gospel? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid himself down for her. So here's what that means for us, that like for Hallie and I, the way we live in our marriage is less about us and our happiness and more about how radiantly beautiful we display who God is to the rest of the world. So when my neighbor, A, Here's me mistreating my wife with my words. Maybe we're getting the kids out of the car and whatever's happening. What he's seeing is the anti-gospel being displayed. Think about that. He goes and reads his Bible. Jesus loves the church like a wife. He's a Christian. Take pastor out. He's a Christian. I see the way he treats his wife. I'm confused. Or, in a rare moment, he sees me lay my life down for her in some way. And then he reads that verse and he's like, oh, that's what the gospel looks like. But think about our kids. Parents, your actions, your actions and your words are like a megaphone placed right at the, right at the edge of your children's ears. Now that's a painful illustration, isn't it? That's how loud your actions are in front of your children like a megaphone going off in their ears, which should force us to be much more delicate and intentional with the way we live life. But it also should, it should, it should also encourage us in this passage to realize, you know what, we're the first glimpse of the gospel they get to see. So when Hudson grows up and he's hearing about Jesus laying his life down for his bride, he's not going, I don't let that look but he's thinking about hopefully more than one event, but an event from his past that he's seen. He goes, I, I kind of have a, a pale reflection of that, right? That's why marriage is the metaphor, the reflection, because it's not the, right? That, I, I, okay, I kind of I know what that looks like now. I get, that helps me understand what the gospel looks like. Or like 
like ladies, maybe little girls, you know, growing up to, to understand what does it look like to follow Jesus? Even boys, your boys growing up to, what does it look like to, don't we want that for our kids? Grow up, fall in love with Jesus and follow him to the ends of the earth. Moms, did you know, ladies, did you know that's one of the things you get to reflect to them first in the way you either do or don't follow your husband? Now think about that, it's like a megaphone. And the first display of the gospel they get to see is in our interaction as husband and wife. That's what Ephesians 5 is saying. I think this is why this is like, you have to ask the question, why only this one moment of creation does God take the microscope and just blow it up and go, look at this? Marriage is not some added on thing that God added just to kind of help us with tax burdens and, right? So we'd know who it's okay to live with or not live with. It's God's saying this, I created marriage in creation. This is part of how I designed humans to operate. Gosh, see how we have devalued the things of God? All right. So let's end with that last verse. This is Genesis 2, 24, I think, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Last thought I'm gonna leave you with now. Yeah, this is, a mis- I believe, a misinterpretation of this text. We tend to read that text, they were naked and were not ashamed. Just the fact that I'm talking about being naked in front of people has people in here embarrassed. Right? And I'd ask you to show your hands, but then you'd be doubly embarrassed. We tend to read that verse and go and say what? They were, sh- they were shameful in front of who? We tend to think of it in front of each other, right? Because then they hide themselves, they cover themselves up. But if you go read the next chapter, they're not hiding from each other. Who are they hiding from? God. Track with me. It's why when you have a bad start to your Sunday morning, husband and wife, and you step out of your function and your roles, and you get here, you have a hard time worshiping. It is. They were shamed in front of God. That's why when we get here, we cover up, we mask, and we hide. Men, I don't know where this is falling on you today. I've had to walk through it twice, so there, okay? I hope it's landing on you somewhat heavy. You would go home and wrestle with this. The way you treat your wife, the state and the health of your marriage, the way you lead her by laying yourself down for her, these are, these are big things. This is not how to live life happier. This is how you were designed to live. Ladies, again, I get that you've been devalued, but don't find your value in the lies of men. We will lie to you every time to get what we want. Find your value in the word of God. You were beautifully, wonderfully made, and you were given these honorable roles in our culture and society. And yeah, you can work hard. You can swing hammers and shoot guns and do all those things and, and have fun doing those things. I'm not saying don't have fun. A woman who can shoot a gun, that's pretty cool. I watched my wife clean a dove one time. That was cool. One time. But don't find your value in those things. I can do what a man can do, so I have value. That's a lie. You have value because a God, a mighty God created you. He determined your value. You can't increase it or decrease it. All right, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna.